Welcome everybody to Current Events with Max and Coborn. My name is Max Cohen. I'll be one of your hosts today. And joining me as he does for every episode of Current Events with Max and Coborn, it's Coborn Bell, the founder of the Museum of Crypto Art. Coborn, how you doing? It's Coborn here. I'm good. How are you? <laughs> I'm good, bro. It's been a while since we've done one of these. I'm happy to be back. I'm excited to be talking about what's going on in crypto art around this time. And I think we should just jump right in. So the thing that has caught my attention and the attention of seemingly everybody in crypto art of the last week or so is this extended saga between Rafik Anadol, the generative digital artist, and Jerry Saltz, the critic who has been extremely critical for seemingly no reason of Rafik Anadol's work. Um, for those of you that have not been paying a ton of attention, Rafik Anadol is like a super successful generative artist. He's really recognizable for um, pieces like Unsupervised, which was in MoMA for I think like a year and a half or something. It was in their lobby. Um, he has done work like on the Sphere in Las Vegas, this really kind of wildly layered, textured, I don't even know what you'd call it. It's like dots and uh, Colbert, how would you describe Rafik Anadol's work to somebody who had no exposure to Rafik Anadol's work? Um, you know, I think I think it's without, kind of <laughs> without being mean. Without being mean, I, I mean, I think the best the best visual way to describe it is you know it has the hypnotic effect of a lava lamp combined mm. with the ultra detailed like particulate generation of AI. So it's uh, kind of like an AI neural wave blending almost as if you know like a like a kid's ball pit on steroids mm, that's pretty good that's a pretty good way to describe it and you know and it takes in a lot of data set influences and it's always based on some kind of theme i know the one at momo was based on the combined like digitized holdings of everything in momo he's done others that have uh used like data from the new york city's city planning office i believe the point of discussing that in such detail is that the art critic Jerry Saltz, who's been doing this for quite some time and has been critical of art for quite some time, has chosen Rafik Anadol as like his patron saint of what he believes to be like mediocre art. Um, and in a series of like tweets over the last week that have gotten more and more kind of ridiculous and targeted and like sudden, uh, Jerry Saltz has tagged Rafik Anadol and just kind of torn down his work and been really, really kind of unnecessarily mean about it, which has sparked Rafik Anadol to respond in turn with such proclamations as I am everybody, you are nobody. Um, just kind of like doing the thing with a critic that every artist seems to know you are not supposed to do with critics, which is like feed into their bullshit. But this is a ridiculous situation on its face which i think we can all agree on but i think it also reveals a lot about like the sensibilities of artists in crypto art and their aggressiveness towards anything outside of this milieu or outside of this movement that isn't like grounded within it because one of rafiq's things that he keeps 
repeating after all of these ridiculous assertions, not ridiculous in terms of their content, but just ridiculous in terms of maybe their ferocity is like, you don't understand my work. You don't understand the basis of my work. Um, you're looking at it from a different lens. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but I think that's a really interesting place to start. Um, Colborn, why are crypto artists or maybe just digital artists today so reticent to have their work criticized by kind of the old guard of art criticism? I mean, it's hard not to say that this is kind of like the is, you know, this is the new culture. This is not, you know, meant to this is <laughs> I don't know. I, I think can we can I read Rafiq's statement? Yeah, actually, that, that sounds like a great idea. You know, OK, let's just I'm going to read it. Jerry Salt said, I do not like the work of Rafiq Anadol, and I have said exactly why I love AI art. I love all tools and technologies. I am merely criticizing an artist's work for what does with their material and tools. Good for you that you love it. I find it mediocre. Now, <laughs> first of all, in that statement, like just love it or hate it, to call somebody's work mediocre is so brutal. That is yeah. so brutal. Uh, and then Rafiq responded, your words has no meaning to me, Jerry Saltz. You never talked to me, never visited my studio, no idea who I am, why and how I create art. But let me tell you, I create my work from my heart. And to learn it, you have to work. You have to research. You have to talk. The world you coming from is changed. New world is bright. New world is inclusive. New world has no gates. I'm my community. I do art for everyone, anyone, any age, and any culture. I'm everyone. You are no one. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> it's so just like the 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 spelling mistakes, the tone everything it's so just not it just does not feel serious right and i know people responded had had them you know fighting well it seems like everybody has like you know it's funny to see the kind of automatic assumptions that people in crypto art make about a feud like this you know you have people who are quick to come to either party's defense you know and they're posting on twitter with these really earnest and well-reasoned arguments about, you know, why Jerry Saltz is allowed to not like this or why Rafiq Anadol's work is actually genius and nobody's allowed to criticize it. You have people who look at it and they're like, this is weirdly contrived. This is weirdly unserious. Like, I'm going to make as much of a joke about this as the two people who are involved are making a joke of themselves. And I think, yeah, it, it feels like the longer this go on goes on, the more it's like staged or playful or unserious but the conversation feels really legitimate to me um, because people are so earnestly responding to both points. You know, I think a lot, it's been very interesting, I think, to see like the amount of people coming to the defense of Rafiq Anadol as if he was like a child who was like bullied on the playground. They're like, no, don't listen to the Jerry Saltz. That's like an old world art critic. Like he, you, you don't have to listen to him. Like your art's, re your art's really great. If it wasn't really great, you wouldn't have all these opportunities and have all this money and yada, yada, yada. So writ large, right, we have a criticism problem. Anybody who portends to be a critic online in a public space, in a public venue like Twitter, immediately gets it handed to them. And that, and that is just kind of uh, the way of the world. Sure. Right? There's not much room for nuance. Everybody takes interpretations all over the place. And when you criticize somebody especially jerry saltz who has a you know a position of power as a senior art critic you know at this point i would imagine jerry 
is just having fun with it. I don't think he actually gives a damn about Rafik Anadol's work. I yeah. think to, you know, I think to call it mediocre is probably in his heart of heart what he feels because he has no connection or lineage to it. It's totally fair. I don't know. Why do you think that like there is this? I, I feel like I know what your answer is going to be, but why is there? Well, you know what? I'm going to rephrase my question because I was originally going to ask, like, why do you think that there's this um, hostility towards criticism? But that's kind of obvious because we live in the Internet age and everyone's hostile to criticism. What I think is more interesting is this dichotomy between an art movement that on the whole is kind of outwardly desperate to be considered mainstream and enter into the mainstream. And the proof of that is in all of the collaborations with Sotheby's and Christie's and the various museums of quote unquote note that like the high selling artists in the space are like constantly aligning themselves with, but then this very publicized and very like well-supported hostility towards the art critics that are also a part of this old world. I don't know, social milieu of, like artistry. So why this dichotomy? Like, doesn't it feel childish to you as it feels to me that you want like all of the success and opportunity of being exposed to the mainstream art world, but none of the like difficulty and criticism and um, necessity of reflecting on what may or may not be poor work on your part? I mean, we're, we're, we're all trying to, I think, champion something that is a bit of a paradox and that's art for the masses. Mm. Right. So the idea of art was always this like gated thing it was meant to be understood by few is meant to be celebrated and enjoyed by generally uber wealthy people. And, you know, the people that are kind of spoon feeding them all of these things and catering to their needs. And so how does, you know, the idea of public art or public installation begin to transcend into that, you know, perhaps. These are, you know, ideas that were brought with like Jeff Koons's balloon dog or maybe mm. like those giant cause sculptures, stuff that is inherently kind of like neutered, bland and boring. But in that it has this larger mass appeal where it can fit in public installation. And I think this is perhaps one of the first, you know, large scale digital experiences that fits in that box of yeah you know this is i don't know is this like the is this the lobby art of crypto is this like the lobby art of the metaverse well it's really interesting that you use those examples of jeff coons and um or at least like comparing the jeff coons and the cause and the rafiq and it because one of the criticisms that jerry salts leveraged at rafiq and it was that his work is a very beautiful distraction it's like, or it's like distracting, but momentary art. And I feel like that's been kind of the art of the, of the new millennium is this like very momentarily arresting, but ultimately uninspiring art that like has so much interweaving with like fashion and um, consumerism. And it's all just meant to be kind of like turned into brand, like cause is a great example, right? The big statues and then, you know, the faces, the eyes with the X over it. And it's like, was this meant to be art? Or was it meant to be like brand identity? And one is obviously on its face so much more interesting than the other. And I, I wonder in your opinion, like, why is that 
the art that is so routinely celebrated and so routinely chosen as the champion. I mean, you use that term lobby art, which I think used as like a denigration, but it also is kind of a, I mean, that's I mean, like the, the introduction, right? Making it in its own right. It's kind of like the commercial appeal. It's what is going to bring people in the door. Mm. Right. And that, you know, that's where it gets, you, that's where MoMA is kind of stuck in a bit of this paradox. In what sense? That they need somebody to get in the door, but they have no like ability to you to display anything from like the crypto art that's deeper? What do you mean? Uh, I mean, you know, I think all of this is uh, is art as Soma, right? Like Soma as, as the drug from Brave New World, um, you know, which kind of it represents like complacency and, and a giving up of control and, and almost like hypnosis. Mm-hmm. so <laughs> you know there's there's no hangover there's like no unpleasant side effects of, of viewing this you sit there you can let your mind water it's me- it wander it's meditative um but is it is it particularly thought provoking how do you no. feel about imp- impressionism as just like a person like what's your opinion on that style like do you find yourself attracted to monets and such I do because I understand how important it was in that moment to begin to like break from reality, mm-hmm. you know, and that, and that carves a, you know, a, a different path of like observation and seeing and presenting how the world is seen to people. I I, th- I think that's a great answer. And I think it's important because I think that the issue with the Jerry Saltz, Rafik Anadol antagonism is that it was so loosely rooted in an actual argument a lot of the things that Jerry Saltz was saying were very emotional and not kind of backed by, I think a lot of the things we would expect from criticism, which is like lengthy analysis and like even keeled um, examination of like various facets and then kind of coming to a single conclusion. It was just very like surf. The criticism was as surface level as I think it was leveraging or um, accusing the artwork of being. And it's interesting because I think that, Obviously, if you were to, we were to port this conversation to 1870, right, shortly after Impressionism had kind of started to achieve mainstream success, I think you could leverage a lot of those, or I'm sorry, I think you could uh, levy a lot of those criticisms at Impressionism that we're doing with Rafik Anadol and that plenty of people do with Rafik Anadol, that it is kind of distracting, that it is really just based in like something that's pretty and that it doesn't really have any like broader societal criticism or commentary and that it is kind of like self-contained and doesn't make you feel uncomfortable, which I think is totally fair. But of course we have 150 years of interim where we understand its historical importance. And I do think that like Jerry Saltz in a lot of his criticism seems to disregard a lot like that paradigm that history may look more kindly on Rafiq Anadol for what this piece represented, where it was, what the techniques that were used were, um, introducing to the wider public and he's too smart and knows too much for that ignorance to actually be legitimate. I mean, there is something fishy about this whole interaction. Don't you think? Uh, I mean, a a little bit, I think, I think it just really highlights two different sides of perhaps of, of, of this divergence that we're experiencing. I think Jerry Saltz, you know, in his response to what Rafiq said about going and learning about and going to the studio and talking with him, he's like, no, you know, I want to be, 
your average viewer. I don't want to know. I don't want to research. I just want to go in and experience it. Mm -hmm. Right. We don't need to know that a million images are combined into a data set that might have influence on 10 out of 10 million pixels in like how this algorithm is sorting and moving these waves. Well, let's let's explore that for a second a bit more, because I, I do think that like so much of what I've preached in crypto art is like added context, like give me more ways to appreciate the art or the artistry, especially like with so much technical brilliance around us, how does an artwork differentiate itself? And I think this will lead into our next conversation as well, but like how does artworks differentiate themselves? Well, it's in process, it's in um, the context, the influence, et cetera. And it sounds like you're kind of in support of experiencing the art without necessarily, like having a positive and impactful experience of the art without having all this added context around it. I mean, I, I think this is exactly like why Robbie Barat dropped out, you know, because I think he saw this as the future. He saw that the person that could accumulate, you know, the biggest marketing team, have the most processors, go partner with like NVIDIA mm -hmm. uh, to produce these like AI monoliths would be the winner. And I think to him as an individual artist, like exploring something on the fringe, that was really sad. Mm. So I think, you know, whereas that was like an artist in their moment of artistry, you know, this is kind of the natural line and, and evolution of that. So, you know, maybe we've drawn the continuum from, you know, what those AI nudes were to what this represents. And it's interesting that somebody like Rafiq is in that position and somebody like Robbie is not, but Robbie dropped out and didn't want to compete in this way. Well, the kind of criticism that was because a couple months ago, there was this whole kind of renewed vigor around discussing Robbie Barrett's AI generated nude portraits. And I feel like that kind of criticism that came not from one source, but from kind of like authentic widespread multinodal community discourse, like that feels more like, true to the spirit of crypto art than having these single actors who are either perceived as being more knowledgeable or more um, discerning than the rest of us. And they're kind of making the determinations about which artwork is valuable or which artwork is successful. Like maybe that's where a lot of this, I don't know, antagonistic conversation flows away from the Jerry Saltz for Fikana thing, which is like, who, what gives Jerry Saltz the right to comment on anything? What gives him, like, when someone gives a Pulitzer Prize for criticism, which Jerry Saltz has won, I think, twice, like, how are you, who's deciding that? What body is giving what person these awards for criticism? And how can something that's like, I don't know, a derivative of the artwork itself, right? Because criticism is going to require the artwork. Like, how can that be worthy of an award without having, like, <laughs> the artwork itself be the centerpiece of, uh, like, not be mentioned? I don't know. It feels like, especially as in... Yeah, I was I was just gonna say, like, as somebody in this space who I, I feel is rather opinionated, I hold back 99% of my true opinions and feelings. You know, I don't feel comfortable to express what I feel, because at the end of the day, what are you you're just going to get attacked online, you're going to get pointed at, you know, and, and maybe, you know, maybe that's part of the the problem is that nobody can play the villain or nobody wants to play perhaps like a bit of the heel or the antagonist 
And when we don't have that critical discourse, when we don't have both sides of that, there's no constructive dialogue. And I think the space writ large has really suffered from that. Yeah, but I think we're all like also like anxious, like millennials and post millennials in crypto art. And I don't know about you, but I feel like a lot of artists and writers and people in the space suffer from like imposter syndrome. So when you start to like boldly put out these uh, theoretical opinions about like not liking this artwork or not liking this artist or kind of cutting through the bullshit, I think you necessarily begin to question like, okay, well, why am I in a position to criticize this thing? What makes my opinion more valid than anybody else's? And you like, we, we can't help but have these reflections because we're all like anxious, neurotic messes. Whereas I think it's pretty, um, what's the word? I think it's pretty typical of like the Gen X slash boomer generation that Jerry Saul's come from to be like, nope, I'm the critic. And what I say goes like, I'm correct because I'm correct. And here's my, you know, one take one act opinion on this artist and it's like oh you don't like it you're wrong sorry i'm not sure like we're capable of that like generationally yeah this is the inherent conflict of of centralization versus decentralization and that we don't have this is what the museum tried to create right some sort of decentralized way to have a broader assessment of truth Mm. but we 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 don't have those systems ready you know, we've spent three years. People don't care. The What decides now is the money in the market. Mm-hmm. Way before any sort of like discourse happens or truth uncovering happens, it's just momentum. And the network effects of, of one's own momentum are very, very sticky. It's a problem that I think is under-recognized and also there's no way that I see to fight against it. In, like, I because don't... yeah, at the, at the same time, you know, we celebrate individuals for their sales. We're, we still, we're still trying to like justify our own communal success. Like people, are, I think, are still en masse trying to justify crypto art's existence, and these big sales help us feel like a real like big boy art movement, which I think is yeah. still kind of necessary for a lot of people that for whatever reason aren't buying in i mean i think that that's this like a lot of this is this like new wave of art of like crypto artists the like 2020 to 2021 and post people who are achieving a lot of big success now i i I find there's less and less interest on the part of the kind of like og crypto artists on celebrating financial success like they don't seem to have people who've been here for a long time yourself included seem to have less interest in being like recognized as legitimate by the rest of the world i'd never you know we never wanted to move into the middle Mm -hmm. right we know it's better on the edge we know it's better on the fringe uh but what was initially a fringe technology has become a massive market Mm -hmm. so it's not particularly interesting to explore the nuances or implications of that technology when things are immediately monetized because before there was, you know, there was that two, three year duration to uncover, to kind of like exhume, to figure out what people were working on, kind of whispering to themselves in the dark, mm-hmm. which is much more exciting than like rushing into the public forum and screaming, look at me. Yeah. I mean, again, we just celebrate every success at like, you know, I think a great example of it is these, the fucking cool cats balloon at the Thanksgiving day parade, oh, the Macy's God. Thanksgiving day parade. And it's just, it's like, I 
personally don't understand this desire to be represented by literally anything crypto related and then just like throw your weight behind it and say like any exposure is good exposure or you know like how can you not believe in the space here's this completely random um like a completely random interaction between a crypto native thing and a i don't know mainstream event or um individual just uh, i find i feel like that's like a lot of the rafik anadol support from within the space as well it's like oh well moma chose rafik anadol as its like crypto art spokesperson which means we have to support because of course we want moma to believe in us and oh the sphere in las vegas has rafik anadol artwork on its face thus we must support rafik anadol's artwork because any exposure to crypto art is great for the community and i feel like that's just such a misread um especially because i feel like these people are reticent to even they're reticent to like bring the rest of crypto art along with them um I don't know how active Rafik Anadol is in like the rest of crypto art and in purchasing crypto art and supporting crypto art. I'm not sure I've ever seen him like even like retweet another artist's work. I don't know. Maybe that's an unfair criticism to levy at him, but it just feels like we have a host of, we're like supporting these people for being involved in crypto art and they have no interest in supporting anybody, but like themselves and their own aspirations. And it seems like they're trying to rocket out of crypto art as much as possible and just like leave this whole thing behind. I don't think, I don't think Rafik Anadol would call himself a crypto artist. I don't, you know, I think he was just successful selling NFTs mm. and, and, and marketing himself, you know, getting himself on a stage. He can do anything he wants, you know? Yeah. Well, he has that that unique blend of artwork that is universally appealing because it is completely accessible to everyone because it's just colors and movement, which if you like it, great. Yeah, it's been the exact same for years, yeah, right? And you can go exact. take it all over the world. It can get bigger. You know, it can get brighter. It can get shinier. Yeah, well, I've long thought that the point of Rafik Andal's artwork was less the aesthetics and more the display technologies, but... Um, this point at which like technologist be or artist begins and ends and technologist begins and ends is pretty muddied. I think with a lot of these like big name artists, maybe that's an, again, an unfair criticism, but at least with Rafik and it all, it's like, well, what are you doing? Are you like here to demonstrate new technologies or are you here to like create artwork? Um, neither is wrong necessarily, but like, I think it's, it's a fair, I think it's a fair request on our part to ask people to kind of like announce their intentions. Um, like, are you using this new like the newest possible ai technology with this densest possible data set because like you've been contracted to do it or because like you feel a need to express yourself look at the end of the day the biggest money is going to be in tech right whoever is able to work with nvidia gpus to render the the biggest most beautiful vibrant thing that attracts the most attention to nvidia is going to be very valuable to that you know multi multi-billion dollar company yeah and that's kind of at the end of the day who everybody is going to be working for. Well, let's, um, let's switch gears and talk about um, our next topic of the day, which I think is really important to bring up because both of the artists we're going to mention, actually there's, well, there's three artists involved that we're going to mention. They have, so the topic I want to talk about is these multi-tiered kind of performance pieces from um, crypto artists and I'm thinking that are like kind of evolving into their next or final stages and 
That includes Matt Cain, whose contractual obligations performance has ended or is ending in real time um, after three acts and operators human unreadable performance, um, which began as a generative uh, drop on art blocks and has now evolved into actual like each piece corresponds to like actual um, choreography or like instructions for choreography. And in each set of these performances, right, whether it's these like black and white stick figure drawings that are uh, that operator is putting out for this next part of their uh, human unreadable performance or Matt Kane dropping all sorts of ridiculous AI pieces into people's wallets throughout this performance, um, some of which very vivid, very beautiful, but ultimately the point was to critique the, I think, like new technology, NVIDIA backed, brilliant aesthetic meta that you were kind of mentioning before. Like both of these things are either commenting on this paradigm or just in opposition to this paradigm. They're looking for more creative, thoughtful, ambitious, like performative and multi-tiered ways to interact with the community of enthusiasts around them and to express its own message. Now you, when we were talking about the uh, topics for the show, you were, you mentioned a Patrick Amidon quote about like putting on a show as a crypto artist versus just releasing one of one artworks. Um, and I think with all the things we've been talking about today, whether that's context, whether that's you know, the mass market interest in bright, shiny technology. There's just a lot of conversations we can have that include these works by Matt Cain and Operator. So I'm wondering, as these two performances evolve or come to an end, like what about them has captured your attention? I believe you're a uh, involved personally in both performances. Am I right? Yeah, definitely. So what gets your goat about them? What do you feel, again, as they're evolving uh, and advancing? Like, I mean, I am, uh, you know, uh, I am not going to be shy in calling the operator human unreadable performance to date, probably one of the most interesting and impressive uh, works that I have seen in my space, uh, in in my time in this space. Um, And that was a project that I had the incredible opportunity to be alongside them with like through conception to, you know, reveal. And I've, I've seen the way they've gone about doing it. Just phenomenal work, like totally ideated, executed over the period of what must be a year now by three people. And the work there just speaks for itself. I don't want to begin to describe it. Uh, but the more you learn, the more you are just uh, totally engrossed by both the the technical brilliance, um, what they are able to fit as far as like humanity and movement into a data set to be, you know, like compressed and encoded and stored in the Ethereum blockchain. It's just such a beautiful fusion of humanity and technology um, with an, a stunning visual aesthetic. That's just, I don't know, that, that is a new standard for mm-hmm. me. And I mean, the, <laughs> the Matt Gain stuff is just incredible. This is 
coming from somebody who's always been so like diligent and calculated uh and this thing was really and but of course kind of likes to cause trouble but this was almost trouble in a new way and it's nice to see the artist almost break free from themselves mm -hmm. and just have fun in a way that the space kind of needs and deserves right now and you yeah. also you know i think it started almost with like blame merv i'm sure it started with a lot of you know, first, probably a desire to do good and help and give back to Super Rare, who, you know, probably in, in turn had equally championed Matt very early on. And then to kind of even go against that in, and say, you know, now there is a new paradigm and, you know, these are no longer like your collectors. These are my actors and these are people that I am taking uh, on a three-part performance where, you know, you are kind of just, you know, the beginning of it. I thought that was fascinating. And to end it, of course, with kind of like this Black Friday rush, midnight, everybody has to be online on the night of Thanksgiving is insane. But I'll mm -hmm. tell you, like, I was there. Um, and I was participating, so... It's interesting to have this conversation about these three kind of, like, artists specifically, right? Matt Cain, Operator, and Rafik all in this sense, because you couldn't leverage the same kind of criticism at either Matt Cain or operator that you or Jerry Saltz did at Rafiq and Like you can't just look at these things for their aesthetics. They are so much more than any kind of just aesthetic experiment. Like they are both active performances. They're both these like multi-tiered kind of investments of information and um, like personage. Like you have to like be paying attention to these things. And what does that do? Right. There is art that, the artistry is existing beyond just the aesthetics of like a given piece itself. And it's interesting to look at a Rafiq Anadol piece, which has zero connection outside of the piece itself. It is only the aesthetics. There is no desire or ability to like, there, there's just is not a, this like, again, multi-tiered like protocol that is bringing in all these outsized, outside influences. There is only like how the piece was made and then the piece itself. And then you have somebody like Jerry Saltz who is approaching these pieces with as I think limited and kind of encapsulative of criticism, like this very uh, maybe limited is just the correct word. Like this, there is no, there aren't any like layers or background given for Jerry Saltz's criticism for pieces that I think you can accurately read as not necessitating background or investment to appreciate. And in fact, that seems like the point of those pieces is to be so universally accessible that anybody anywhere at any time can just like see them and quote unquote appreciate. And it's really interesting to see Matt Cain and operator on the totally opposite side of this, where they are not just asking for your participation in something larger and more complex, but they're demanding it. Um, and neither really gives a damn if you are engaged or not like, you know, operators, Human Unreadable was a 400 or 500 piece drop on Artblocks. Am I right? 400. 400. Like any Artblocks project, and especially one that did very well price-wise after Mint, you were going to get people who were minting it because it had a lot of um, buildup and then were would be buying and flipping it for, you know, trying to make a buck on Artblocks. And that's just the nature of launching anything that has a 
um, a large mint count, and especially on art blocks. Like, the, and of course, um, Ani and Deja would have been aware of that as they were minting the thing, or you know, at least peripherally aware of that. But the people who bought those pieces do not necessarily have to be involved in a way that honors the artwork that comes after, the performance that comes after. Just like the people who received Matt Cain's airdrop for contractual obligations from the Act 1 because they held a super rare rare pass, they did not have to be involved in the performance as it went on. And the artists don't really give a shit. They're like, this is the expression of the – this is the expression that I would like to put forth towards the world. And you're either going to pay attention to all of it. Or like the art's not going to care about you. The art's not going to open itself up if you're not going to open itself up to it. And that level, that varied level of commitment that Matt Kane and Operator versus Rafiq Endel are demanding from their audience, I think is just a really interesting paradigm. Yeah, I, just a small note as probably we wrap it up. I thought it was hilarious uh, that, you know, Jerry... Saltz responded to die with the most likes senior frogs version of Edward Hopper's oh, yeah. with a, you know, I, this, I like, which yeah, this I like, <laughs> which is just so funny. That's so funny. You know, it's, it's a shock to me. I think it's, it's risen almost like 50% that human unreadables floor is still 1.65 ETH. I really don't, you know, these have to be the like most irrational markets. If somebody out there like, has a Fidenza, sell your Fidenza and buy all the human unreadable pieces. That seems major. And then I think the greatest performance to date is probably still Matt Cain's, and that's Gazer's. That yeah. is just an eternal piece to like sit back, reflect, think about as it grows. It goes wild, celebrates the birthdays of, of Monet. So many little Easter eggs baked into that coat. That one still still blows my mind as well. I do want to. I do think we should finish up, but I do want to ask you, like, why do you think that there is at a certain level of crypto artistry, uh, like a certain like actual artistic brilliance? Like, why do you think there is this pull towards this kind of like multi-tiered performance as opposed to just putting out the actual works themselves? Well, remember the the meta where it was like we're going to release all these open editions and we're going to take people down this roadmap and. Everybody mm -hmm. is fighting for the same limited attention and a single piece doesn't do it anymore. It might go viral on Twitter uh, if you're lucky, mm -hmm. but you know, the algorithm is, is so finicky that you have no idea. So, you know, I think it's about, uh, I mean, in, in the case of human unreadable by operator, it was just necessary, right? They had to uh, have an act one to have the you know visual aesthetic and then they had to you know reveal the choreography and then they do the final performance and operator is a performance art group this is this is performance art that's it's what they do right um i think matt just found the right place in time to go on this like wild journey through time and space and past, present and future and what he's obligated to do. And I think that's just the artist having fun. And, and what did he say? The, you know, the living artist is the roadmap. Yeah. I think that was the roadmap. Him. The living artist is the living artist. Exactly. I think that was him just playing with that and maybe not necessarily knowing where he's going, but knowing that he's an artist and proving it, by sketching the roadmap as he went. Maybe we have a seriousness problem in crypto art. People taking themselves too seriously. People working too seriously. 
not enough fun. I've been thinking, I've been thinking about that so, so much because people are in here like telling other people what to do, that they need to be more serious, that they need to behave, that they need to respect power, that, and it's just ridiculous. You know, we're not here, unfortunately, saving the world. We're not curing cancer. We're not curing hunger. Uh, we're on the fringe of a technology that allows people to express themselves, which is powerful in its own right. Um, but, you know, what we're really doing is, is breaking down barriers of access to art and expression at a time when, you know, artificial general intelligence is, is just there. And it has truly the ability to replace like 80, 90% of current economic function. Well said. So, so you know, it's going to be a wild five to 10 years. I, I don't know. We're in a bit of uh, a human existential crisis of like how to be and how to behave. And if, you know, you can't approach anything like this with fear. So mm -hmm. hopefully you can laugh at it and you certainly shouldn't pretend to act like, you know, what the fuck is happening <laughs> or what should happen or what should happen. Um, it's crazy that we went this whole episode and, and we're not going to talk about it, but that we didn't even mention the Sam Altman chat GPT open. I'm sorry. The Sam Altman open AI drama, but we didn't, I mean, and we're not. That's, what? that's, it though. That, that, I mean, it just speaks to it. I don't know what is, you know, what is the power of an individual in a future where there is artificial intelligence that is, you know, smarter, more powerful than anything that you could ever imagine you could be. Yeah. You know, we've created, uh, we've put ourselves suddenly not the highest on the food chain, as it were. Yeah, I think about this a lot with writing, right? Like, I can take my work so seriously. I can try and be the best at it. There's a greater than 50% likelihood that in five years, let alone 10, 20 years, that my best possible output is going to pale in comparison to the very, very like garden variety AIs that are just available. And so it forces you to rethink why you're doing the thing. And it, honestly, it's like, it sounds somewhat childish and like, I feel like I'm on Nick Jr. over here, but it's about fun. It's about like having fun and the beauty of expressing oneself, et cetera. And like, you know, Rafiq Anadol couldn't make his, the most beautiful work today and, you know, deny the criticisms that are um, thrown at him. But like his work will be obsolete probably within five or 10 years. And there's a good chance that most artists work will be obsolete in five or 10 years. So why do you do the thing? It's like the expression of joy um, and the ability to communicate that joy with other people, which I think we get in both human unreadable and Matt Cain. Now I didn't, didn't mean to turn this into like a bash on Rafiq and all whose work yeah, I actually I mean, like, but, but, but that's, I think why you would expect it to be almost like water off a duck's back. Because if you actually are creating from the heart, if you actually are creating, you know, out of pure joy, then what do you care who criticizes it? Because you should know in your heart that you are creating something that is joyous, that is bringing it. So why defend it? Mm -hmm. Why would you have that defense mechanism if you actually believed it to be true? And that is, that is, again, the inherent conflict that is inside of the crypto art space. Why do we need to defend ourselves against these people if we know what we're doing is this? Yeah. Why are we so, why do we lack so much fucking confidence? Right. It's almost, it, it is, we, we act like a child that is being like a teenage child that is being reprimanded by a parent. Yeah. It's 
Fascinating. Lack that maturity. And I don't know. I don't know if people who lack that maturity are attracted to that space or, or what, but it's, it is, um, I don't know, you know, nobody needs to, every, I don't know, you know, I, I think we just need to keep building and we need to, uh, you, you prove it through what you do, not what you say. It's so, it is, it's, it just boils down to the most childish, simple platitudes. And if Jerry Saltz had any balls whatsoever, he would not just say on Twitter what he was thinking. He would come on this podcast and <laughs> say it in person. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm down to just go full critical uh, podcast if Jerry comes on. That'd be crazy if we just like had Jerry as like a third host. It was just like the Max current events with Max Coburn and Jerry Seltz. <laughs> critical edition. Kid could dream. Any last words before we uh, get out of here, Coburn? We already went long. No. Thanks cool. for the time, dude. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for being here. If you liked what you heard today, please give us a like, follow, subscribe, five-star rating, whatever you can do, you should do on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. Please give us a follow on Substack at museumofcrypto.substack.com. Everything we put out is always free, and it's always fucking brilliant. Um, <laughs> this has been another edition of Current Events with Max and Colborne. We'll be back later in the week with Mocha Live. It's been a pleasure as always, and I hope it's been as much of a pleasure for you. So long, everybody. So long, Colborn. See ya. This has been another episode of Current Events with Max and Colborn. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Colborn, as always, for being my co-host. Our intro music was composed by Julian Brangle, so a big thank you to him. And once again, thank you to all of you for being with us. We'll be back soon with another episode of Current Events. So long.